Voyages of Pim Better Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. Today, I ventured out in the freezing cold to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where I spent some time with Ryan Chukta from the Kings County Distillery. Ryan is the wizard of all things whiskey, bourbon, and scotch, and that makes him a good guy in my book. We talked about the distillation process, the company, where the distillery might be headed in the future, and some cool facts and tidbits about distilling in New York and in other parts of the country. So I had a great time. I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. You can check out the show notes for their Instagram, the website for the distillery, and the link to the books that we were referencing. The other cool thing about this episode is this is episode number 10. Sweet. It was only about a month and a half to two months ago that I was still thinking and dreaming about doing a podcast, and now I've already got 10 done. I've had a great time doing it so far. I've learned a lot from the people who are doing things like distilling or astrology or riding a motorcycle across the country, and I've also had a great time hanging out with my friends who have been on the podcast as well. Thank you to everybody who's been listening. Uh, Please continue to do so. Remember to subscribe, to leave comments, and to leave a star rating on iTunes. You may have also noticed that with the last two episodes, there's new outro music. That is the Wizard of All Things Audio. Again, Brian Goldsman. So thank you to Brian. Uh, I love the new outro music. Brian asked me, what kind of a sound do you want? So I sent him... The Passenger by Iggy Pop, and he did a great job of making something in that vein. So thank you, Brian. And thank you to all of you for listening to this episode. Please let me know what you think. Peace. Okay, so today I am here with Ryan Chukta at the Kings County Distillery in Vinegar Hill, Brooklyn. I had never heard of Vinegar Hill before I, before I came here today. Um, so why don't you first just give us um, sort of your job description and what you do at the distillery? Sure. So I'm the head blender and production manager here at Kings County. So it's my job to not only create the blends uh, or batches of our signature bourbon, but sort of oversee the production downstairs on the distillation floor, uh, figure out when we're low in certain inventories, what we have to mash to distill, uh, whether it be our moonshine or steep some of our uh, kind of famous chocolate whiskey or dump barrels to make uh, the new batch of our bourbon. So I'm kind of the product guy. Uh, do you think of if you think of it as an ad agency or a magazine? There's like the suits and the creatives. Right. I'm more of the creative. Uh, I don't have to worry too much about the the money and the sales. I get to focus. You get all the fun the stuff. Process and the products. <laughs> yeah. oh, very cool. How did you get started in distilling? Because I know like home brewing is a big thing. Is this something sure. you had done before working here? Well, it's really hard to get into it pre. 
pre-professionally because distilling is very illegal. Uh, if you get caught by the feds, you're going <laughs> to wind up in prison for a oh, few wow. years with a very hefty and a million dollars fine. Um, and that goes back historically because almost every conflict in U.S. history and most of the income up until the income tax was derived from taxes on spirits and, and other uh, what certain uh, ancient puritanical thoughts were sins uh, or as we call them today, luxuries, <laughs> stuff like tobacco and alcohol and musical instruments and feathers and fashion and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's hard to get into before you get tied up in a, or as I was lucky to get tied up in a company like this by volunteering. Uh, but really the passion started with whiskey itself. Um, I went to a scotch tasting uh, with my dad and a few of his friends. My dad's actually not a big drinker. Um, it was a friend of his that belonged to a, a club in Baltimore that he actually joined to, so one of his daughters could get married there. And he had, they just so happened to be having a scotch tasting. They invited my dad and I, and I sat down in front of five whiskeys that were all considered scotch, but every one of them tasted different. And I was kind of blown away at that point. I was maybe would have a vodka martini once, a, twice a year, and then I would be a beer drinker. I was 26 at the time. Um, so it really got me interested in this idea of differentiation and what, how broad the, the spectrum of whiskey could be. And that was just scotch. I hadn't even delved into bourbon or rye or Japanese yet. So that kind of led me, I have a bit of an addictive personality in that way uh, when it comes to knowledge. And I just kind of followed that through the rabbit hole and wound up now as a production manager of a distillery. So I took it a little farther than most might have. That's, there's a lot. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Like that's, that's really interesting because I've taught U.S. history before. And I guess like one of the first ways to try to flex like some federal muscle was when the whiskey rebellion happened. And yes. I believe it was Washington who tried to stamp that out. Um, but I didn't realize like, so even for your own like personal use, I guess you can't distill. No, because it's, it's a very volatile process. And if you don't do it oh, correctly, okay. you can cause explosions or uh, you know, leak uh, vapor into the air. Right. Where, if something were to ignite, you could cause serious damage to buildings or people around you. So the, wow. the federal government does not want anyone distilling at home, uh, mostly for safety, but also there is there's a tax evasion portion to that as well. So then do you guys get uh, regulated heavily? Is there like inspectors that come and check out what you're doing? Um, so we're overseen by the Federal Tax and Trade Bureau, uh, okay. the TTB. Uh, so they are the ones that we have to report to uh, quarterly to the federal government and then on the state level monthly, which shows our production outputs, how much we've laid down in storage or put into a barrel. Uh, and then what we've sold, either, you know, in our case is unaged uh, corn whiskey or one of our infusions. So they keep an eye on our production outputs, especially okay. when we ramp up volume. But uh, the government's kind of overburdened right now, mm. uh, the TTB, <laughs> with uh, the huge expansion in craft distilling. There's probably, I think there's over 800 craft distilleries oh, wow. in the U.S. right now, and the TTB only has like six to ten field agents. So, oh, for the whole country? I think so. Whoa. Uh, unless that, I mean, I know that 
you know, they're trying to get the funding to increase that, but it, it kind of came on so fast that they're, you know, they, they become overtaxed, <laughs> pardon my pun there, uh, <laughs> in, in, you know, in-person inspections. So it's, it's more of a, it's on us to, to do the proper reporting. And as long as we're operating within the, the safety guidelines, which we work with the fire department and the health inspectors and all the local, uh, Intermediaries, uh, as long as we're you know, operating and within those confines, then we're okay. We're set, and we we especially here at Kings and most of the other Brooklyn distilleries that I've come into contact with and our owners. You know, we all kind of have a pride within the industry, and we're we're out to be uh, safe and produce a, a good product. So we oh. kind of take it on ourselves a bit. So I come here thinking like I'm going to be talking about flavors and things like that, but <laughs> wow, it gets. It gets pretty deep. Is there, I saw some books out in the other room. Is there um, any literature that you recommend in learning about the the history of distilling in the country? Sure. This will be a shameless plug, but sure. our, two, um, our two owners our, and founders, Colin Spoolman and David Haskell, have written two books at this point. Oh, wow. Uh, the first one is called The Guide to Urban Moonshining. Uh, and it kind of gives you an oversight into how they started the business, the history of New York distilling. And if you were to <laughs> not by a recommendation <laughs> delve into distilling, how one might do that. Um, in fact, Colin and David you know, started experimenting before their first license. So, uh, you know, not something that, again, we want to encourage, right. but... Uh, <clears throat> they they kind of have laid the groundwork and and put it into a book that's become very popular. And then Collins oh, cool. came out with his second book called Dead Distillers, which kind of delves into the history of some iconic names within the American whiskey business and where how they operated, where they lived, where they died, where they're buried. A lot of them were within a you know the, if you look at the Kentucky families like the Beams and the Samuelsons, like. A lot of these distilling heritages are all kind of intertwined within that state, and the families kind of cross over. Oh, wow. There's like a, there's kind of this weird family tree of of whiskey that uh, that's emerged in the country. So both of those are great books. Um, cool. I'll throw also a a link in the show notes for this episode to check those out. They're on Amazon or anything like that. Yes, they are. Okay. And available here at our tasting room. Very and, cool. Um, at a couple different. I've seen them on a couple couple different kind of bespoke sites. Uh, I think Cool Material maybe had it at one point, and Bespoke Post, okay. um, some kind of uh, men's gift sites. Uh, not to offend any of the ladies <laughs> out there, but uh, I don't particularly troll any of those sites. So I only know the <laughs> I only right. know the men's gift sites that I've seen them on. Cool. Um, so you mentioned you, you've said a couple terms, right? So we've we've said whiskey, we've said scotch, we've said bourbon. Uh, in my very primitive knowledge of these things, I believe that uh, the source materials and the location that it's made determines what each of those is. But can you clarify that for us? Sure. So how I always describe it here on my tours, and I think it's the easiest way for anyone that's a novice to uh, to really grasp whis- whiskey is to think of the Westminster Dog Show. Okay. <laughs> I know that that is a real non sequitur, but uh, so whiskey is the top term, like like the term dog. 
So you've got this these two words at the top of that hierarchy. So everything falls tree. within whiskey. Exactly. Okay. So underneath of that, if you were in the dog show, you'd have your working dogs and your sporting dogs and your terriers. That's where you would underneath on the whiskey tree, you'd have bourbon, scotch, rye, Irish, Japanese, Canadian. They're like kind of your classes of whiskey or your classes of dogs. Okay, and obviously based on geographic location. That and mash bill, um, which is the grain bill that we start with when we make whiskey. Okay. And then underneath of those classifications, you then have your brands or your types of dogs. So if you're in the terrier class, uh, you'd have your Cairn Terrier and your Scottish Terrier and your Yorkshire Terrier. If you were in Bourbon, you'd have Old Granddad and E.H. Taylor and Kings County. Or if you were in Scotch, you'd have Glenfiddich and Glenlivet and Macallan. Uh, so it kind of breaks down there. So all of those types, all of those things that I've mentioned are whiskey. It's just which category do they fall under? Are they bourbon? Are they Scotch? Are they Irish? Are they Canadian? Now for bourbon, which is what our flagship product is here, you have to meet six criteria to oh, get okay. a bourbon whiskey label from the federal government. Oh, so wow. The first one is you have to be made anywhere in the United States, not just Kentucky. So if you don't remember my name or where I work or what you're listening to, just please remember <laughs> that you can make bourbon anywhere in the country, not just Kentucky. Okay. So we make a bourbon whiskey here in Brooklyn. Uh, the second one is it has to be at least 51% corn in the mash bill. And when we talk about some of the production aspects, I assume in a little bit, that'll make a little more sense. Okay. It has to be the predominant grain with what we start with at the beginning of the process. The third is it has to be aged in a new charred oak barrel. doesn't have to be American oak, but 99.8% of the time it's white American oak. Uh, in fact, Tim and I are lucky enough to be surrounded by about 600 of those yes. right now. Um, so they're the first three and the main three. The other three are on the production side, so it has to be distilled to 160 proof or below. And what that does is differentiates it from vodka. By distilling it to that proof or below, we retain some flavor compounds in oh, the distillate. Wow. So uh, vodka, by definition, is odorless, colorless, flavorless, pointless. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> uh, no, all it is is ethanol and water. You've basically distilled out everything but ethanol and water. That's why vodka is, you know is typically pretty neutral. Mm. By distilling to that lower proof, we're retaining any uh, other compounds that aren't ethanol or water, which are called congeners. And those congeners are what start to differentiate your whiskey. It gives it a flavor to it. So if you were to taste our unaged whiskey off the still, you would, be, you would pick up some of the corn grain on it. It would, it would have a flavor to it, almost like kind of a, a very high proof liquid cornflakes kind of taste to wow. it. Uh, then it has to enter a barrel at 125 proof or less, and then it has to enter a bottle at 80 proof or more. So you'll never see a bourbon whiskey under 80 proof or 40% alcohol. Uh, so if you meet those six criteria, the TTB, the government will give you a bourbon whiskey label. If you're aged at least two years in that oak cask, you'll get a straight bourbon whiskey label. And if you're aged four years, bottled at 100 proof, and distilled, aged, bottled, all under the same license by the same distiller in the same distilling season, you will get what's called bottled and bond. Uh, and bottled and bond is a uh, historical mark of quality. In 1897, there was a bottled and bond act. Uh, 
at the time you had a lot of what were called rectifiers who would buy whiskey from distillers and cut it with uh, uh, all kinds of terrible things like uh, turpentine and food colorings and caramels and, and other acids and, and toxic things and to elongate their supply they would make more money off of it so by having this bottled and bond act all of your whiskey would be stored in a bonded warehouse under government supervision so someone like me as the production manager and an on-site tax man would be the only two guys that had the key to the warehouse and that was that was to ensure that no one would get in there and adulterate your whiskey so wow. by by having all those criteria when you bought a bottle of bottled and bond whiskey, you were getting, by government standards, the highest quality. So we just released our first bottled and bonds here. Uh, in fact, Tim and I are sitting right next to some 15-gallon barrels, which are holding the next batch of our bottled and bond. Uh, so we're pretty excited to bring that kind of designation back, uh, especially into the craft world. Uh, You'll, you may have seen Bottled and Bond on maybe Old Granddad or Rittenhouse Rye. Uh, still, same rules apply to the big, the big producers down in Kentucky, but as far as we know, we're the first or one of the first to have uh, a Bottled and Bond in the craft arena. So these barrels that you're referring to, they say 2012, I believe? Yes. So when will those be ready for consumption? Uh, in fact, I will be sampling 16 of them today. Oh, wow. Uh, we have... About, it's either 15 or 16, I have to look at my inventory, but we have about that that are due. That, so they were distilled between, so the distilling season that I talked about was between January and June is the first distilling season, and July and December is the second. So I have about 16, 15, 16 barrels that are coming due at four years old, or are due right now at four years old. Uh, that were distilled in between July and December of 2012. So they are four years old. They will be evaluated by me if I deem them worthy to come out of the barrel at this point. And that's a taste evaluation? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the blending process, the, the part of my head blender role, uh, less on the production manager side of the role. That's certainly a cool perk. Yes, indeed. So Although people think it's a lot more drinking than it is. It's mostly right. smelling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Now, for, a, for a layman, let me see how I can put this. I guess if you go into a bar or something and you don't want to spend a lot of money and you ask for a well whiskey, it's going to be something like an Evan Williams, right? Sure. So what distinguishes that from something that's more high-end? Is it uh, how it's aged, the ingredients? Um, typically, it's an age. Uh, an Evan Williams may be a mix, uh, maybe a blend of Heaven Hills barrels from, you know, two to four years. Whereas if you're going to get a, say, W.L. Weller uh, special reserve that might be at a Buffalo Trace and it might be like six, seven year old barrels, something like that. So it's typically age. Uh, it also has to do with the palate of the blender. What are they, what are they after? Are they making more of a cocktail kind of whiskey, like something you're going to mix from a well? Is it more of a sipping whiskey? Uh, but also don't underestimate the power of marketing too. Uh, fancy labels and cool bottle shapes and price points right. okay. also dictate a lot of, in the consumer's mind, what's trendy, what's good, 
when, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the case. We're seeing a big swing right now, especially within Scotch whiskey, of moving away from age statements. So oh, wow. most people thought of whiskey in terms of age, that automatically a 20-year whiskey is better than an 18-year whiskey. That's not always the case in, in my more professional opinion. I prefer Van Winkle 10-year to 15-year. I don't like super oaky whiskeys. Um, I prefer weeded bourbons, so something like Maker's Mark or W.L. Weller have a, a wheat component in their mash bill. So they're corn, wheat, and barley, whereas something like Old Grandad is corn, rye, and barley. So the wheat is a little softer, a little fruitier. Huh. The, the rye is a little spicier and more, you know, like, bigger of a bigger flavor in your mouth so <clears throat> it's kind of like all over the map in in taste preference and there really is no wrong uh there's no wrong whiskey to drink i have an uncle that is like, will never probably drink anything but jack daniels okay <laughs> for me jack daniels isn't my favorite but that's where that's what that's why there are so many whiskeys in the market i mean there's enough space and enough palate uh, out there that each one of those kind of serve a different market. I certainly have my favorites um, and they don't always align with even some of my distillers here or some other friends, you know, whiskey friends of mine that go out and, and have a dram now and then. Uh, it's, it's a personal preference, but typically to go back to your question, yes, it has to do with the mash bill okay. uh, and age. Uh, typically it's age. You mentioned before your um, your chocolate bourbon, I believe, yes. and I saw that over the summer you also had a jalapeno grapefruit. Is yes. that true? Yes. So, what's the process like for experimentation with new flavors and things like that? Well, that's the benefit of being a craft distiller and operating on a, a smaller scale. Is that to turn? If you think about it as a ship, you know, to turn a, an aircraft carrier takes a lot of effort, right? Whereas if you're in a little skiff bouncing around, you can maneuver right. this way and that. Uh, so to, to shift our production downstairs is much easier for me than someone at Heaven Hill or Buffalo Trace to, to take 10,000 times the size production and kind of swing on a, you know, on a dime and be like, let's try this. Right. There's a lot more that goes into it. Whereas here, you know, the chocolate and the chocolate kind of came about by accident. Um, we actually, we took these, if you think of a cocoa bean like a peanut, mm. uh, the inside, the nut, is the cocoa nib, which chocolatiers use to make their, uh, their chocolate bars. And the husk is kind of like a peanut shell. It's like a kind it's of a pulpy, pulpy piece right, of wood. Yeah. Uh, so we took... Our owner was talking with Mass Brothers' owner at, at an event, and they were saying how this this husk is, is a byproduct for them. It's garbage. So our owner, Colin, was like, oh, well, we'll take it from you and experiment with it. We, oh, wow. He was thinking he could distill it, but it turns out there wasn't enough fermentable sugar in there to, to create a, a basically a beer or a distiller's wash to distill. Uh, and my former boss, Nicole Austin, who was our master blender prior to me, uh, she kind of thought about it and was like, well, these are, these are kind of like little wood chips. So they, act, they have more in common with a barrel than they have with a grain. So we made these kind of big cheesecloth tea bags of them and dropped them in, in, in a tank of our unaged 
corn whiskey and let them sit and tested them. And after about five or six weeks, depending on the temperature outside, we got this really dark, bitter baker's chocolate kind of, you know, infusion out of it. And people seemed, you know, they loved it. So it became, at first it was kind of a... Uh, Valentine's Day post-Christmas kind of product and it grew into our third major uh, ongoing product and it's probably our second biggest in sales right now. So a lot of these flavor experimentations are are simply infusions. Okay. Uh, the problem with aged experimentations is you don't know if you screwed up until a year or two down the line when it's ready to come oh, out wow, of a barrel. Yeah. So when we try a new mash bill, uh, say something like our peated bourbon, uh, which is um, a variation of our bourbon. It, it has to do with the malt content. So if you peating or peated malt can get, uh, if we're going to talk about process, maybe I can swing sure. <laughs> swing the, that discussion a little later on. But what it is is a different way of malting barley that imparts a bit of a campfire smoke onto the grain. So we cut our barley content and put half of this peated malt in and a year or so down the line, it turned out really nice. Now, we tried a second experimentation uh, where we're going to do more peated malt in that, in that recipe, but I won't know how that tastes until mid-next year. So okay. we can't, we're not going to have like a final recipe down until like mid-next year until we see which one we like better. <laughs> wow, that's wild. It's, it's, it's crazy because like what if it just totally doesn't work out? Exactly. Wow. Then, then that's where the blending process comes in. I'll have stock of stuff um, that I can blend it uh, I can blend the old stuff with the new stuff to make you know kind of even it out and maybe bring it back to a maybe bring it to something that we really like that we'll need to produce two different recipes and kind of mix them together okay. we did that with an oat whiskey typically we'll do small batches so we uh, we made a, an oat whiskey which is kind of like instead of thinking about if you're making bourbon, you're kind of starting with grits, corn, and water. This time we started with oatmeal, like oats and water, and we made about 15 barrels of it. And, you know, that's, we'll, we'll do it on a small scale first. And at the very least, you know, if, if it's not something we want to produce long term as a product, we, we can sell it here as a specialty item to people that are really into whiskey and, and want to taste some different grain profiles that come through off of our stills. Where do you source those materials from when you're talking about corn and things like that? So we operate, we received the first farm distiller's license in New York City since oh, wow. Prohibition. So that's why we are wow. the oldest distillery, whiskey distillery in New York City. Very uh, cool. All six years of us, <laughs> almost seven. Uh, so we are both young and old at the same time. Now, what that farm distiller's license means is that we have to get the predominant grain in our whiskey from New York State so that it, that it creates a reciprocal economy. So we're, the farmers upstate are benefiting from the grain sourcing and the distillers closer, typically now closer to the city are you know, reaping the benefits from the distillation process. Uh, this came about from kind of a reworking of laws. It was very expensive post-prohibition when a lot of uh, alcohol laws were passed to the state and local level. In fact, you know, prohibition ended in 33, but I mean, up until 66, Mississippi still was dry because it, it moved to the state level. Now in New York, we like our drink, so we became what was called wet again. Uh, 
but the distilling laws didn't really change. It, it costs a lot of money to be able to distill. So in and around the, the 2000s, early, mid-2000s, uh, some farmers upstate, uh, along with wine growers out on Long Island, started to petition Albany to, uh, to bring these prices down uh, for them to be able to distill excess grain or a bad yield from, uh, from the, one of their vineyards on a season, you know, if the weather was, was off, and be able to distill a brandy from, from the grapes or distill a whiskey on a smaller scale. So there's a cap on the amount that we can produce under that license. We can only produce a certain number of gallons a year under that mm. license. Um, but it also, we can now hold the license for a very small amount of money. Uh, and then there are different classes of license within New York State. Uh, so we hold two licenses. Everything but our single malt whiskey op is, is distilled and, and sold under this farm license, which is what our tasting room and little bar operate under. Uh, and then our single malt whiskey, all of the grain is sourced from the UK. The oh, UK wow. know what they're doing with barley. Mm. I mean, that's what they've been working with right. for centuries. So we source it all from there. And that's actually produced under just a, a base craft distiller's license that doesn't have the, the grain requirement. But all of our corn comes from a farm co-op up around the Finger Lakes called Lakeview Organic. Are there additional hurdles and restrictions then when you want to distribute to other states? Yes. I mean, we, ha we have a lawyer that just deals oh, wow. in spirits uh, because every state right. has different laws on distribution. And I mean, Pennsylvania is notoriously hard to get into because it's state controlled. Uh, we're allowed under our license oh, right, to self-distribute right. in New York. So we actually have our own delivery guy that makes deliveries within uh, the five boroughs. But then we use distributors in New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, in the Mid-Atlantic has one that sources D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Delaware. We have a distributor in Texas. Um, so, yes, it gets very complicated once it comes to ship. I mean, it's very hard to ship as well, certain, uh, especially for any wine drinkers out there that are listening. I'm sure if you've ever tried to ship wine into or out of specific states, you'll see you know, certain places won't do it because of these strict tax and, and distribution laws. Is Texas as far as you uh, distribute? We're, uh, we're in California a bit, uh, in and around L.A. Uh, now that I've moved into more of a uh, head production role, it's going to allow Colin, our, our head, you know, our master distiller, our owner, the one that kind of started the business, came up with the recipes, it's going to allow him to, to be able to focus on expanding distribution and marketing and, and being like high-level sales because he, he won't have to be, you know, here in the nitty gritty of production since myself and our, our factory manager are here and know the ins and outs of it. So, uh, so we look to expand quickly and we're already overseas. We have, we've got sales in, in London and Japan and Australia. Oh, Japan. Uh, huh. I think Panama, some, some odd like Panama and I think Sweden at one point. That's so, really cool. Uh, the name is getting out there and, and now that we're getting into 2017 shortly. We're going to be able to expand our output over the next couple of years with some new equipment that we had brought in in August. Um, so next year is going to be an, an exciting time. It's very cool. Yeah. Uh, you have a product that you call, or at least you used to call Moonshine. Yes. Historically, is Moonshine just like a broader term for... Um, 
distillation that occurs sort of at, at home and in a bathtub and unconventionally? Yeah. Yes, moonshine is a very unregulated term. So okay. it's, it came about by illicit distilling that typically happened at night out in the woods by the light of the moon. So you were a, you were a shiner, you were operating with just moonlight uh, out in the woods somewhere. Typically, or historically speaking, it was you were distilling uh, like feed, feed grain or, sugar, or even just sugar, mm. uh, like sugar shine, if you ever heard of that. Now what we have in our label- So that'd be more uh, like rum? Uh, it could be. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a grain mix and sometimes they would use sugar to like kickstart the fermentation. So uh, it's kind of dependent on what they were making in okay. the region. But typically, yeah, moonshine was an illicit. You were dodging the the tax man and uh, doing it under the light of the moon. But that also means unaged corn whiskey is more or less what it is. It's uh, it has to be at least 80% corn in the in the mash bill for a true moonshine, which is what ours is. We, we, got, we have an 85% corn, 15% barley mash bill for our unaged corn whiskey slash moonshine. Uh, moonshine was a little bit of a, you know, it's a marketing term. People right, right. know it. They're also scared of it. Uh-huh. And then because ours is bottled at a very palatable 80 proof or 40% alcohol, not straight off the still at 140 proof. It's not going to rip your throat out. It's, it's got, it actually drinks more like a soft tequila or like a grappa. Um, and you can really taste the, the grain on there. But it's, it's very important for whiskey drinkers to, to try it at least once because that is what, that's how all of the age stuff that you like starts out. So it gives you kind of a base point of flavor of like, this is what's coming off the still. And then you taste something you know, taste an aged, our aged bourbon right next to it that's been sitting in a barrel for two years and it's a different color. It has different aromas. Right, I was going to ask about the color. Flavors. If it's clear it hasn't been uh, aging in like a burnt barrel? Exactly. If it's, it, all spirits coming off the still are clear. So any brown spirits that you see have been aged in some sort of oak container or barrel. So let's talk about that process. Why, sure. why does that happen? Uh, that's, I hope you guys should settle in because this is like my bread and butter right here. Uh, so there's a bunch of different factors that happen within a barrel. So when, when you seal the barrel off with this unfortunate name of a bung, it looks like a, <laughs> looks like a wood stopper that you hammer in. Uh, it creates a, a pressurized vessel, more or less, within this oak barrel container. Now, the reason oak is so... Uh, prominent in barrels is that it's watertight, but it's not airtight. So it holds liquid, but you may have noticed, Tim, that the the room smells pretty good. Right. So that's whiskey evaporating out of the barrel. It's called the angel share. Uh, We hate it because that's just money floating right up into the air that people can sniff for free. (laughs) Uh, So on these little five-gallon barrels that uh, up until now we've aged all of our product in, we would take it uh, 12 to 14% loss in this barrel by the time we dump it. So wow. uh, it's, a, it's pretty significant. That's between uh, slight leakage, uh, during the, usually during the summer months, and then this evaporation. But inside the barrel, why, why it's a necessary part of the business is that 
even though whiskey is evaporating out, you've got oxygen that's coming in the barrel. So we've got this pressurized vessel containing this new make spirit that we put in there. At a, at, we put it in at 116 proof, so 58% alcohol. And alcohol and water are both solvents. Um, so what they do is as the, as the temperature changes in this room, it's not temperature controlled, there's no heat or, or air conditioning in here. In the summer, all, of that, all those volatile compounds inside start banging against each other and expanding. It's heating up. Not only that, but the wood is expanding. It's swelling up as well. Now inside, all of the spirit is starting to push into the staves of the wood. And it's grabbing compounds that are naturally found in oak wood and pulling them back out when it gets cold, either at night or in the winter. So there's this kind of seasonal ebb and flow of spirit into and out of the staves or the, or the wood slats on, on this barrel. Um, so that's the extraction portion of what's happening. So it's going into the wood, grabbing on the compounds and sucking them back out. Now the reaction portion of what's happening is when those compounds bond with oxygen. So the biggest example or the best example I can give is lignin. Lignin is a compound that's found in oak wood uh, in, in high concentration. And when lignin bonds with oxygen, it becomes vanillin the flavor oh, wow. compound vanillin. So that's why bourbons typically have that heavy uh, caramel bourbon butter or vanilla butterscotchy kind of notes to it. All that, it's that lignin that's imparted. Um, also on the inside of the barrel, when I was talking about what makes a bourbon is it has to be a new charred oak barrel. So the charring process came about initially back in the 1800s from a sanitary reason. Barrels are expensive. I mean, coopers hand make them. A cooper is a basically a master carpenter that can build a barrel. Uh, these barrels have no pins, there are no, no nails, no glue. This is all held together just by these hoops um, and the force that's, that's put on the bilge, which is the, the little bend in the, in the stave. Do they get reused? They do. Okay. So especially back in the day, in, in the 1800s, you would be using barrels for anything from shipping pickles or fish or nails wow. <laughs> to a hardware store. So you'd get a barrel, and if it smelled like pickles, the easiest way to reuse it was to burn out the oh, inside wow. and take that layer off, and then you get that smell out. Well, whiskey makers found out, and this is one of the theories of how bourbon got its name, was whiskey makers in Kentucky would get these barrels. They'd They'd want to reuse them, and they'd burn out the inside. They'd fill their whiskey. They'd put it on a barge and send it down the Mississippi to New Orleans. Well, being on a flat boat in the, in the sun all day for three, four months going down the Mississippi, they'd get this whiskey into, into market, and all of a sudden you had this rich, flavorful whiskey that was much different than putting it in a, in a new barrel, sending it down. Um, so people started requesting the, the whiskey from Bourbon because Bourbon County was one of the ports that was the farthest away from New Orleans, so it sat the longest on the river. Wow. Uh, so that charring on the inside, although it was initially sanitary, is now built into law because of the flavor that it imparts. It's doing a couple different things. It's uh, when you're charring out the inside, you, you're splitting the wood. The, the higher the char, they come in levels. So we use a char three uh, for our smaller stuff and a char four for our large 53-gallon barrels. Um, 
the higher the char, you start to get some splintering and puckering in the wood. They call it an alligator char because it starts to look like alligator skin. Um, and that allows for deeper, the spirit can get into the wood easier. That's one of the reasons. Second reason for charring is you're, you caramelize some, some of the leftover wood sugars in the barrel, some of the sap that's left that in sense. there. Yeah. And you get those like creme brulee caramel notes that come through on the whiskey. Is that all done in New York too? No, all of our barrels are sourced. Uh, our, our fives, tens, and fifteens are sourced from uh, Minnesota. Oh, wow. And our 53-gallon barrels, which are kind of the industry standard if you were to go to Kentucky, um, they are sourced from Independent Stave, which is the major supplier in Kentucky. Okay. Uh, I believe they're one of their main plants, and where we get our, our shipped from is in Missouri. Uh, high, you know, the Ozarks have a high concentration of oak wood trees, mm. so that's kind of the, the ripe area for it. Uh, and the last reason for the charring is a simple kind of Brita filter. So you have a charcoal layer on the inside, and as that spirit goes pushing in and out of the staves, some of those uh, uh, maybe not-so-great compounds that have maybe made it into your spirit get trapped in that charcoal layer on the way back out, and you get a mellower, smoother spirit at the end. So that's why typically your moonshine or unaged whiskey's got a little bit of a <laughs> little bit of a kick, kick to the yeah. end, whereas your aged whiskeys are very round and have a nice, like, you know, mellow finish to it. Wow. <laughs> you certainly know a lot about this. Um, so before it even gets into the barrels, how long is the the process of taking the corn and turning it into alcohol? Uh, it's about four and a half days, four and a half to five days. Oh, that days. quick? Yep. So, it, and it's temperature dependent as well. So down in the, in the, if we were to take a little trip downstairs into the still room, uh, you'd see a couple pieces of equipment, but there's really three major ones. You have your, your mash cooker, which is basically a big pot on the stove. Uh, you have, we have our open topped wood fermenters, which look like big wooden jacuzzis and then you have our copper stills so the process starts first by making a beer like all whiskey is is distilled beer uh, if you think about it so mm. we have to make this crude distiller's beer or wash um, and that starts with adding water and corn into our mash cooker bringing it up to just under a boil and letting it cook for an hour we're basically making grits right corn and water and what that's doing is taking the cracked corn and inside that cracked corn the, the easiest way i was terrible at science in school like if anyone told me i could do this i probably would have made more <laughs> attention but i had to dumb it down for myself so i've that's how i imparted it on others so i apologize to any chemical engineers out there uh, <laughs> there's lots of chemical engineers <laughs> listening to this right now no. right. well now 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 i'm gonna get nervous uh, so the way I understand anyway is within these, this cracked corn we've got, uh, like this, think of it as a balled up piece of string, it's starch, uh, and we need access to that balled up piece of string. So by boiling it, we're taking it and we're elongating it. It starts to untangle and, and kind of elongate into these wet noodles that all then get intertwined together and create this gloppy, soupy, grip, grits-like mess inside the pot. So after that hour, we'll then cool it down to about 156 to 158 degrees, and we'll add malted barley. So for any home brewers or, or beer aficionados out there, malted barley is the process of 
taking a barley seed and tricking it into thinking it's going to grow into a new grain, a new piece of basically grass, and then you flash it with heat and it stops the germination inside. But now the seed is open and it had kick-started some conversions in there with enzymes that convert starch into sugar. And now we can add that barley into our grits-like mess and all those enzymes are going to start chomping away at those bits of starch that we just elongated and converting them into sugar. So within about five or ten minutes of that cooking over the next hour, it's going to start to thin out and become sweet to the taste. It kind of tastes like liquid cornflakes. Um, so we'll let that cook for about an hour. Then we'll cool it down to 80 degrees, and we will pump it through a solid liquid separator, which does exactly what it, its name implies. It spits out all the bits of grain, the, the barley and corn that we had in there, into a bin that will then go to a compost facility, and all the sugary liquid comes out into a tank and flows through a series of pipes into one of our fermenters. That's when yeast is added. So in the summer, over three days, and in the winter, over four days, yeast are little single-celled organisms that luckily for humankind eat, eat sugar, which mm. we just made in our pot, and they produce ethanol and carbon dioxide. Ethanol is alcohol. That's what we drink. So the, we have open-air fermenters, so the carbon dioxide bubbles off the top, the ethanol seeps into solution, and after... Like I said, three days in the summer, four days in the winter. Uh, the yeast have eaten all the sugar. Uh, they produced all their ethanol. Now they're swimming around in their own pee, more or less. Uh, they've got no food left. And some of them will start to eat their waste, eat ethanol, and produce some esters and aldehydes that are kind of flavor compounds. Uh, the rest will die off, and the fermentation is done. So we will have a, about a 5% beer it's not a very good beer. It's cloudy. It tastes like corn. It's not something you want to have a pint of at the end of the day. But we've got the basis for distillation now because all distillation is is taking large volumes of low alcohol and making small volumes of high alcohol. So we take, in the end of the process, we're going to take 220 gallons of 5% beer and we're going to make about 15 gallons of 70% alcohol. So... That's a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of <laughs> pardon the term, shrinkage when it comes to volume. Uh, so, and, and how that's done is in our copper pot stills. So if you were to go to Kentucky, you'd see... Um, Which large, I am actually in a couple of weeks, so oh, I'm well, excited. You'll get to see the different process. We make our whiskey the Scotch way. We make ours a very European Scotch whiskey mm. sort of way. It's still bourbon, just the way we distill it is more in line with scotch. Uh, so typically your big Kentucky producers will use column stills, this large, much more efficient way of distilling, much less labor intensive. And on their scale, it's needed. I mean, it would take, it would take them forever to produce the amount that they produce on a column still if they were using our method of pot stills. Uh, but on a pot still, you get a lot more flavor. Uh, there's a lot more what's called reflux. Uh, compounds that are, when they boil, they can't quite make it into the condenser, so they, they drip down the sides and reboil, and kind of it kind of gives you some added flavor in there. Uh, I have a question about that. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. So then in a, in a batch, right, are there going to be possibly different subtleties in, in different bottles or is it going to be pretty consistent in terms of the flavor? Uh, that kind of 
comes more on the back end. Uh, okay. That's that's on the blending end. So part of my job is to create a consistent okay. bourbon. Uh, on the distillation end, it's up to the distiller to get a consistent to, to, uh, a consistent uh, clean spirit off the still. But because the process is kind of the same, you know, all the time, it is very consistent we're always making what are called our cuts at the same at the same uh abv at the same temperatures so there's a consistency a distillery is really a factory if you think about it uh Hmm. and once you really get into the rhythm of it and you've got we're sourcing the grains from the same place we use the same yeast we use the same water we use the same stills it becomes it becomes a process like making a car um now they're at the at a certain point in the distillation process, there is a, an art to it. There is a, a taste and smell component that the distillers are looking for. Uh, but really, it's it's just a a, a series of repetitive uh, actions that create that consistent see off the still for that goes into the barrel, and then it's up to me on the back end of stuff coming out of a barrel to then blend it together to create the Kings County kind of house style. Uh, because this is all organic, uh, every one of these barrels, we could fill this entire row of, uh, it's probably about 25 barrels with the same, di- the same distillate off the same batch, off the same run on the same day. And two years from now when I taste these, every one of them is going to smell different. Wow. Um, some, some might be a little spicier. Some huh. might have a, an apple note on them. Some, and that's all because these, all these wood staves are different. They come from different trees, grown in different parts of the forest. They get more sunlight or have a different soil or right. have more rain. So there's, there's a, a basic consistency coming out, but then there's nuances that I've got to kind of piece together to make sure that I'm not putting out a uh, whiskey that's way too oaky and is missing all the vanilla or something that's too sweet and doesn't have any spice on it. Or, you know, there's making sure that all those components that people like about our whiskey are present. That's really interesting. Do you bottle them here or do you send do. it off to a facility? Nope. Are, everything is hand, in fact, hand bottled here. Wow. Uh, we have guys that come in on Tuesday and Wednesday and I'll have tanks ready for them based on our needs and inventory. And we have a four-bottle machine. One guy puts the bottles in. Next guy puts the caps on. Next guy puts the labels on. Very, I love last Lucy, guy, right? Yeah, last guy. <laughs> see, that's right, chocolate factory. <laughs> <laughs> and some days you'll see the backup where, like, the guy on the on the bottling machine is moving a little faster than the cap guy. Right. See these, like, just rows of bottles up. lined up on the table. Wow. Um, so you're talking about sort of the flavor that your customers or your consumers expect. Is it, like, do you, I don't know if this is, like, snobby, but do you cringe or is it sacrilege if somebody takes, like, your whiskey and mix it with a Coca-Cola or something like that? Uh, if it's supposed to be a sipping whiskey? I'd burn? die a little bit inside. Yeah. I would. <laughs> but, you know, everybody's got, if they're buying it and enjoying it, then I'm happy. Oh, for uh, sure, yeah. But, yes, our whiskey is made to be a sipper. It's a lot of thought has gone into it from the distillation end to... The, the hand, you know, blending. Every barrel is evaluated by me before it goes into a batch. Wow. Um, so we're really focused on putting out a whiskey that necessarily shouldn't be mixed, but could be. Um, I've seen a lot of converts on our whiskeys, people that don't think that they like bourbon and will taste ours and be like, huh, I, I like this though. 
And I think that has a little bit to do with uh, our stills. Uh, so if you were to see our kind of onion shaped still, you get uh, the size and shape of the still will affect the flavor and the, and the mouthfeel. So we have kind of short squat stills. They create a meatier whiskey. It gives it a little more mm. grip, a little oilier in the mouth. So it doesn't doesn't have that. Excuse me. It doesn't have that uh, kind of slate finish on your tongue or that burn. You know, like kind of burn on the back end. Right. Um, we also use a high corn content. So seventy percent corn, thirty percent barley. We don't use a flavor grain. So some people don't like. Uh, say old granddad because they don't like the spiciness of the rye in there. Whereas ours tends to be a little bit on the sweeter side, uh, has a little bit more vanilla caramel qualities to it, uh, which makes it, you know, can make it for a, a easier sipper for someone that's not maybe into the really robust whiskeys. Do you guys ever think about like what pairs well with it? Like for a consumer and you're selling your chocolate, right? Sure. Do you ever think like, hey, this goes with this food and we recommend it with that? Yeah, I'm, you know, I've had, I've been to uh, scotch tastings and some single malt scotches pair incredibly well with dark chocolate. You would kind of never oh, think wow. that. Yeah. But, like for our chocolate whiskey, my sister's a baker and she, she makes a brown butter bourbon cookie and she swapped the chocolate Sounds in. Sounds amazing. <laughs> so you get a little under, you know, under note of chocolate on there. Uh, people use it in, you know, over ice cream and mm. people sip on it as like a after dinner drink because it's got that bitter dark quality to it. So it's kind of like a digestif uh, coffee, the obvious one. But as far as bourbon, I mean, I never really thought about that, about what it might pair well with. Whenever I do a whiskey tasting, I always, uh, well, I used to host one at home for some friends and family when I would go back to Maryland and my mom and sister would typically make, you know, like the, the Southern comfort food kind of thing. I mean, people, when you think of bourbon, you typically think of the South, maybe some right. barbecue or mashed potatoes or cornbread, so something to sit in there and soak it up right. and drink more whiskey. <laughs> so I would say for me, that's what I would want to eat is like some of that Southern comfort food to sit in there, get it all soaked up, and then I can just keep having more whiskey. <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. I'm wondering about this facility. So the, this is a, a really pretty location. It's a beautiful old building. How did you guys end up over here? We were quite lucky. So we started out, uh, David and Colin got the, the license in 2010. And for the first two years or year and a half or so, they were operating over in Bushwick in this second story little kind of like studio commercial space that was only about a quarter of the size of our tasting room right now uh, on a series of little 10-gallon hobby stills, probably only producing about two or three gallons of spirit a day. Uh, and they were also, but they were giving tours there in this little space. Mm. People wanted, they were interested in it to see how it was being made. So uh, people from the Navy Yard actually came to the tour and oh, said, wow. You know, if you guys are looking to expand, uh, you should, you know, give us a call. We've got this beautiful building that we think you would love and that would, you know, suit your needs. Uh, so they came over and kind of fell in love. Colin is a, a huge history buff. Um, he's, I mean, he's taught me most of what I know about New York City distilling history to this point. And um, 
so once he saw this building and David is also like kind of our design minded uh, aesthetics guy. So when they saw this place, it, it just jumped right out at them and they signed the lease. Uh, the Navy Yard was kind enough to work with us being a small business to, you know, to kind of give us a lease that progressed with our business growth uh, so that we could afford to move in here and expand. Um, so this uh, the building that we're in is actually called the Paymaster Building. It was the sort of the bank of the Navy Yard back when it was a, an active yard from the, I want to say, 1805, maybe a little earlier, early early 1800s up until 1966 when uh, the U.S. government decommissioned it and sold it to the city of New York for a dollar. Whoa. Uh, so this is now kind of a hub for small businesses right. and uh you know, we were lucky enough to be one of the first of those like kind of small craft businesses to to bring some prominence to the yard, and now you've got Brooklyn Brewery that's slated to move their operations here. In, oh, I didn't know that. In 2018. Wow. Uh, I think Russ and Daughters is going to have an outpost here. Wow, very cool. Uh, there's a, a little rooftop Reds winery over there that people hang out in the summer. Uh, so I really think you know within the next, especially two years or so, the Navy Yard is going to kind of be a little bit of like a, an adult amusement park. Like you can come here and you got your whiskey, your wine, your beer, your bagels and locks, like waterfront. Like you'll be able to just kind of, it'll be a, a place to come and, you know, spend a few hours and not have to, not have to go very far to get what you need. Currently people can come for tours on Saturdays. Yes, we have, we have tours. Uh, the only day we don't have tours is Mondays, in fact. Uh, so Sunday and then Tuesday through Friday, it's at 3 and 5 o'clock. Um, and you can make appointments online or just show up. Uh, and then Saturday, we have them between 1 and 4. And they kind of run. You don't need an appointment that day. You just kind of come in and they run every 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, so you just kind of hop on the next one that's going off. And Very the tour... Cool. Tour kind of encompasses the first part, first 15 or 20 minutes is the history of distilling in the United States and New York in specific. Uh, there was something called the Brooklyn Whiskey Wars that happened kind of right out here in Vinegar Hill, very close to where we operate. Um, so that encompasses the first part. Then when you go down on the production floor, see all the equipment, see how it's made. And usually the stills are running, so you see it dripping right off the stills. Um, and then the last part, you come up to our uh, our barrel room, which is the the picturesque version of our warehouse. Mm. We do have another much larger, much less pretty warehouse that just as stacks of barrels um, in a very Dexter-like warehouse space. <laughs> uh, That's also in Brooklyn. Yes, about 15 minutes down the road on, okay. uh, on Flushing. Um, yeah, and you'd come in here talk about aging and some of these things that we went over before about what gives it its color and flavor and and uh, the different size barrels that are in here. That's the other kind of component that we didn't, that I didn't touch on before is that there's a couple different sizes in here. There's five gallon barrels, 10 gallon, 30 gallon, 15 gallon, 53 gallon. And what that does is when you change the surface area of a barrel, it changes the, the amount of time that it has to age. So you have more spirit inside of a five-gallon barrel touching the wood staves than you would in a 53-gallon barrel. So if you took okay. a cross-section of it, there'd be this whole conical section of liquid in the right. center that's not touching any wood, whereas when you shrink the barrel down, there's much less of that. So a five-gallon barrel, we can get something uh, to blend with in about a year to two years. Mm. 
Uh, 10 gallon is like two to three years, 15 gallon is four years, 30 gallon is six to eight years, and a 53, we're probably gonna let sit eight to 12 years. Wow, that's wild. We're in a position to have one of the largest stocks of craft whiskey in the in the country probably at this point because we've been laying down more whiskey than we've been bottling for the last couple of years to be able to push these age ranges and hopefully one day have a an eight-year Kings County bourbon you know, uh, on the market. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was going to... I was going to close with like where you see things heading, but it sounds like the the future's pretty bright, huh? We think so. I mean, we with this new equipment that's uh that's uh well, downstairs right now that's kind of just really big pretty paperweights until we get them hooked up to the boiler. Uh, that is slated to kind of five times our output over the next 5 years. So in theory by the early 2020s we could be making close to 200 gallons a day uh, wow. which is a significant amount <laughs> yeah. of whiskey uh, and yeah people are really excited about the new you know like the new experimental offerings that we you know our peated bourbon our single malt that just got released uh, some of these seasonal infusions that we're doing and now that we have our own kind of bar and cafe up at the the gatehouse uh, at the sand street gate People can hang out, you know, they can come for a tour and then they can go sit up there and have cocktails and and they don't have to leave right away. So we're kind of creating this nice, we're expanding the brand to be more than just the factory. We, we want you to come and hang it's out an and like yeah. talk to the bartenders and they'll, you know, tell them what you like and they make everything with our products or stuff that's made in Brooklyn. Uh, that's how the, the bar operates uh, currently. So... Sorry, we don't have beer or wine, but uh, we've got some talented guys up there that can make you something that tastes good. Uh, Very cool. So, yeah, it's uh, you know it's a good time to be in craft spirits and in whiskey in general. There's a huge rise in popularity, and it doesn't doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So, <laughs> we hope that it, we hope that it stays at that level anyway. Yeah, I mean, I would expect it to. That's. Uh, this has been really, really interesting. Great. Thank you for yeah, sharing all your knowledge. Um, I will link to the books. I'll link to the Instagram and the website and things like that. Sure. Is there anything else we should let people know about? Um, well, you should definitely come by and see our uh, the taste. For sure. It's all decorated for Christmas. There's some uh, hot toddies and homemade apple cider with spiced whiskey and uh, some great holiday. There's a a whiskey bottle nativity that our one bartender made <laughs> that's in the window. That's That seems to be the, the big uh, hit right now. <laughs> Very cool. Um, but yeah, just keep your eye out on uh, Bottled and Bond is going to be the, I think the next, one of the next big releases, uh, especially in New York over the next six months. I'll be doing the first, we've released a few single barrels of it um, that you can buy here in the tasting room, but I'll be getting ready to do a blend, uh, kind of the first blend of it or a batch of it over the next two weeks or so. So that should be ready to go uh, at least in New York in the early part of next year. So uh, always check on the, the website and come by and see us. Very cool. Come thirsty people. Yes. All right. Thanks so much, Ryan. This was great. Thank you.